Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know, I have a thick skin. I think that one of the things that benefits me as a historian is that I try to look at things from the vantage point of the troubles that people in preceding generations have had to confront and surmount. And, you know, that always makes me feel like, oh, we can get by, we can handle this, you know, because the truly epic (laughs) and dire crises and tragedies that confronted people who lived before we did, they have a humbling effect when you look at those things. And so I tend to just kind of wake up in the morning, try to put things in perspective and do what I have to do. That was Jelani Cobb. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here this week. I just got back from um, a protest here in Los Angeles. The protest was primarily peaceful while I was there. As it escalated, it got increasingly more violent. The violence was often instigated by either police officers or white people. That's what I saw. And maybe you're like me and you've been following the news on social media, on TV. And boy, it's, um, it's hard to put a finger on all of this. 
It's hard to wrap your head around it. I'm sorry for the pregnant pauses here, but I just don't have the words. You know, like anyone who looks like how I do, I've spent the last week trying to figure out my place and what's happening in this country, how and where I can be most useful. I could go on about George Floyd or Maude Arbery or Breonna Taylor, all of whom were killed at the hands of law enforcement, all of whom had their lives cut tragically short by the people hired to protect us. But my words don't really matter right now. I know if you're a listener of this podcast, you're probably a smart and decent person. You may even be a white person, and you may be saying to yourself or to others, what's happened in Minneapolis, Louisville, Glynn County, Ferguson, it's horrible, it's disgusting. Those officers should be punished for their crimes. But I'm not like them. I'm not racist like that. And that may very well be true. In fact, I'm sure it is true. I'm sure you're not racist like that. I'm sure you're not like them. But you know what? There's a price to gliding through life with privilege, with the safety net, with the shield of invincibility primarily afforded to white people in this country. The price, and it's a pretty small price, is discomfort right now. The quicker people who look like me accept that we are part of the problem, the quicker we can help solve it. So, I don't have answers, and I don't think it's my place to lecture in this moment. What the Mexican half is telling the white half of me is that this is a moment to reflect, to take in the pain that's around us, the very real pain that lives beyond the words in newspapers, on television, on social media. It's very real pain. These are, this is real human life. And this is a moment to watch and listen. And then, when ready to do so, help. Because it's going to take all of us to course correct the bleak trajectory we're on right now. One of our goals here on Talk Easy has always been to introduce and promote voices more equipped to discuss these matters. We did that with Noam Chomsky and Dr. Ashish Jha at the beginning of the coronavirus, and we're doing that this week with Jelani Cobb. Jelani is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he covers race and politics. He's also a teacher at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Recently, he wrote about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, putting both horrific events in historical context. You can find those pieces in The New Yorker or in the show notes for this episode at www.talkeasypod.com. Also in our show notes, we'll be including links to the Minnesota Freedom Fund, the North Star Health Collective, and Black Visions Collective. These are groups committed to improving black life in a multitude of ways through relief, bail funds, and health care services. And you can find all of those links on our website. Thank you for making us part of your week. 
in my lifetime, it's never been more turbulent. And all of us here on the podcast are doing our damnedest to make this thing for you week after week. We hope it helps. We hope it's healing in some ways. And for this week's episode, I hope it's above all informative. Let's get to it. Jelani Cobb, thank you for joining me. It's Friday, May 29th. Back in 2010, you wrote a book called The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama and the Paradox of Progress. For those who have not read it, there's a passage I want to quote. Uh, You say, in Grant Park in Chicago, 700,000 people jammed into the space along Lake Michigan to hear Barack Obama say, change has come to America. And it has, but the dimensions and contours of that change are not yet apparent. We will not know its full yield, the ways in which it will alter race and citizenship and possibility for many years to come. (laughs) I think that's true, but probably in a more bitterly ironic sense than I was willing to admit at that time. And I don't want to say that nothing good came out of that experiment uh, or that administration or the fact that there was a Black person that was able to be elected president. But it's also crucial to understanding the period that we're in right now, that so much of what we've seen has been a reaction to the fact that there had ever been a Black president. And like the kind of extended contrail of racial contempt that has followed his um, presidency embodied literally uh, in the person of Donald Trump. What do you make of the dimensions and contours in this moment right now? If you were watching a movie and there was a pandemic, a recession, and then a like racial crisis <laughs> stemming from an on-camera murder of someone by a police officer, you just wouldn't find that scenario credible. But that's exactly the situation that we're in now, all presided over by a person who has trafficked in conspiracy theories and uh, his contribution to the dialogue you know, as president of the United States was to you know, tweet out that anyone who loots would be shot by the U.S. military. And, you know, in fairness, he issued a second tweet attempting to clarify the first or clean up the first. But, you know, I find it unconvincing, you know, that his intent was anything other than to say that, as he said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. If it was a film, we would walk out of the theater. Yeah, it'd be too much... There's no way we're getting through that film. There's no way I'm sitting there for, for two hours watching that movie. Yeah, that's like Contagion or The Big Short or Do the Right Thing. <laughs> but you, <laughs> you, you don't have all three of those movies going on at the same time. Not only are these events happening at the same time, but you wrote earlier this week in a piece for The New Yorker 
an article called The Death of George Floyd in Context. I just want to read the lead uh, for it here. Two incidents separated by 12 hours and 1,200 miles have taken on the appearance of the control and the variable in a grotesque experiment about race in America. On Monday morning in New York City's Central Park, a white woman named Amy Cooper called 911 and told the dispatcher that an African-American man was threatening her. Mm-hmm. You then later wrote, On Monday evening in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a 46-year-old black man named George Floyd died in a way that highlighted the implications that calls such as the one Amy Cooper Place can have. George Floyd is who Christian Cooper might have been. That final line you wrote, George Floyd is who Christian Cooper might have been, to me is is the beating heart of what's been happening this week. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of inherent in a lot of situations that involve African-Americans and law enforcement. And so, you know, I remember growing up with um, mentors and people who lived in communities where there was certainly crime, but they would, their principle, like, was to never call the police. Uh, You know, their thinking was that the police would make any situation worse. Um, And that's specifically because of the dynamics of race. And making an unsubstantiated allegation like the one that was lodged in Central Park, you know, that an African-American, and note that she specified when she called uh, the police, that she specified it was an African-American. And, you know, why that detail was relevant, you know, remains to be seen. But making a call like that could set off the chain of events that culminate in what we saw in Minnesota or any of the now genre of stories that we've seen involving people who are unarmed and who have lost their lives at the hands of police. Can I ask you, what do you make of the consequences, both for the officer who attacked George Floyd and Amy Cooper? Well, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, for Amy Cooper, you know, the consequences were swift. You know, she lost her job. The uh, rescue service required that she give back uh, the the dog she had adopted. And she's gone through a great deal of public castigation. You know, I think that that is a reasonable uh, set of consequences for what she did. And on the other side of it, it's unknown, you know, what the ultimate consequences will be. Uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, the uh, police officer who was seen kneeling on Mr. Floyd's neck, has been charged with third-degree murder. Uh, But there's a very spotty history about this. First, prosecutors rarely bring charges directly against police. They often prefer to send charges to a grand jury, knowing that grand juries are often reluctant to indict police officers, and that takes it off of their own hands. If a a case does go to trial, it's still very difficult to get a conviction. And we saw that with the case uh, also in nearby uh, in Minnesota, in a community called Falcon Heights, where in 2000, 
16, 2017, a man by the name of Philando Castile was shot by a police officer uh, whom, after a routine traffic stop, and he'd indicated to the officer that he was a licensed firearm carrier, uh, and the police officer lost it and shot him fatally, nonetheless, in front of a four-year-old girl and in front of Mr. Castile's girlfriend. Well, he was uh, acquitted, you know, on charges when those charges were brought up. And, you know, there were uh, no legal consequences for the officer who placed a chokehold on Eric Garner, you know, that killed him. And we could just kind of walk through the situations. No legal consequences for the officer who killed Tamir Rice, was playing with a toy gun in a park uh, in Ohio. And so if you look at any of those situations, they're as egregious as what happened to Mr. Floyd this week. And, you know, there's a few instances in which people have been convicted. Uh, Walter Scott, you know, who was shot in the back by a Charleston, North Charleston police officer in 2015 was, you know, an exception to that. But juries are generally very reluctant to convict police officers. So what the ultimate consequences will be uh, besides firing, and that, you know, happened immediately, but uh, whether any of these individuals will actually uh, be sentenced as a result of the actions they took that culminated in the death of George Floyd, I would not bet on that happening. In your experience, why are juries reluctant to prosecute police officers? That's one of the interesting, more interesting dynamics here. Because when you look at uh, American institutions, there's, uh, over the past 20, 25 years, declining faith in almost all of them. People don't trust the press. They don't trust Congress. They trust the presidency less than they once did. You can kind of walk through, they distrust the uh, educational institutions. And a handful of institutions still remain highly regarded. And they are the military, small business, and police. And the trust in police is something that fractures along lines of race. You know, whites tend to trust police far more than uh, people of color, specifically African-Americans do. So you start out with a institution that enjoys a fairly high degree of trust among white people. And secondly, a dynamic of race in which people tend to disbelieve African-Americans. Uh, and so in and of itself, that sets up an uphill battle. And I also think that part of it is what people are willing to countenance. It's a scary thought. You know, for people, like, if you are afraid of the lawless, violent, dangerous element in society, and you've placed your faith in the police as the one institution that can ward those individuals away from your doorstep, I don't think people want to. They don't have to. They don't have personal experience with uh, un- that gives them an understanding of how the police departments really function or often function, the average person is not really interested in thinking that this institution is troubled, uh, riven with racism, you know, a vector of inequality in American society. People don't want to think about that. That seems to speak to the conversation I've been seeing online today about what white people need to do in this moment. 
the kind of conversations they need to be having. And a lot of what I'm reading online is basically people of color telling white people, you guys need to talk to each other. That's what this is about. You, you need to have a conversation with your uncle who has some backwards views. You need to call up your grandparents. You need to check in on everyone. You need to go to Thanksgiving dinner. You need to have the uncomfortable conversations. And I'll say on a personal note, I have had those conversations. I can't say that they were successful, but I had them. And they're really, they're really fucking hard. They're really hard. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because, you know, you not only write for The New Yorker, but you, you teach journalism at Columbia and you're around students and this kind of spirit of debate where discourse is encouraged. I don't know. What kind of advice would you give to people in terms of engaging with people in your life that have different views in this time? I always, always think with people who are very set in, um, in their views, it's often more useful to ask questions than it is to make statements. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a series of questions can lead people to conclusions that they feel are their own. And they can own, uh, you know, the, the idea that maybe they've been wrong about something much more easily if they feel like it's an organic idea of their own uh, than they can when people are coming, you know, from outside and, you know, telling them what they did wrong. Or even when people are kind of absurdly wrong. <laughs> but uh, that's one thing I think that time has, has taught me. And it's good for people to, to have those conversations and to not necessarily place, you know, too high a premium on changing anyone's mind. It's very difficult to do that, at least in one conversation. Sometimes those things happen over the course of time. And so there's there's that part of it. And, you know, the, the final thing, I think, is that there's a kind of orange is the new black phenomenon, you know, to this, which is... Practically speaking, there are lots of people who were more capable of understanding the pernicious effects of mass incarceration when they saw that show, you know, and countenanced the idea that Piper Kerman, this waspy, blonde, white woman, had been caught up in this cycle of imprisonment and going like, wow, you know, this person who I can relate to uh, was incarcerated in a way that probably didn't benefit society. And I think one of the brilliant things about that show, that one of the things that that show did well was open up a vista to look at the lives of other women, including of the women of color, by getting people's attention, talking about this white woman at first. Same thing um, that happened in, during the civil rights movement uh, with Freedom Riders, and civil rights workers were people who were largely unsympathetic to the plight of African-Americans would recognize, you know, the violence that was visited on white people. And is that morally ideal? No. Is it practical and pragmatic? Might that work? Yeah, sometimes it does. And the thing that I think that we should be mindful of in that same vein is that we had this conversation about 
violence, police violence in the United States and police violence directed at African-Americans. And that's crucial. It's important, obviously, you know, given the work that I do, that's something I think you, you have to be cognizant of. But it also obscures the fact that a hell of a lot of unarmed white people get killed by police in the United States every year or shot in instances where they should not have been shot. And so we have to do a better job of talking about this. The better way of saying that this is not a racial problem, it's an American problem that is often compounded by race. But everybody in the society, you know, lives in a place where police are very prone to use excessive force. Why do you think that's not more clearly articulated in the media? I don't know why that's not more clearly articulated, but I do know that when people think that a problem affects a particular community and they don't belong to that community, it's much easier for them to put it out of their minds, like the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. You know, there are people who are heterosexual who thought, this won't affect me, and so I don't really have to be concerned about it. And of course, these things Dr. King talked about as the inescapable web of mutuality, but uh, of course, these things impact each other uh, indirectly or directly or uh, in ways that you might not have thought about, you know, at, at first blush. And we have not done a good enough job of pointing to the ways that these, this specific issue just has tentacles that reach out in all of these different directions in society. You know, in regards to the LGBTQ community. You wrote an article earlier this month on May 9th called We Are Living in the Age of the Black Panic Defense. Mm -hmm. This piece from earlier in May focused on the Ahmaud Arbery case who was killed at the hands of, of Gregory and Travis McMichael. In it, you recount a letter written by George Barnhill, the DA in Waycross, Georgia, a letter that was sent to the Glen County Police Department, and he was set to defend the McMichaels before recusing himself over family ties. But I want to quote something. In this letter, Barnhill wrote that the McMichaels had been within their rights to pursue and confront Arbery under a Georgia law that makes citizens arrest legal if a person witnessed or has direct knowledge of a crime committed by the suspect. You continued, Gregory McMichael said that they drew their weapons in case... Arbery was armed. Later, as the young man lay dying in the street, the elder McMichael turned to him on his back to see if they had a firearm. He did not, meaning that in the distant echo of the Trayvon Martin case, two armed men had stalked an unarmed black man, cut off his means of escape, drew weapons, and when a fight ensued, killed him. We are living in the age of the black panic defense as we have been for many years. And so, you know, that has been a kind of convenient rationale. It's been a convenient rationale since Reconstruction for kind of any act of violence that's been directed at Black people. Like, you know, you were afraid. You were afraid for your life. That's what George Zimmerman said, you know, that he was afraid for his life, despite the fact that he had initiated the violence, initiated the exchange with uh, Mr. Martin. And so you then get yourself into this kind of, looking glass version of reality where you're asking when is it reasonable to be afraid of someone can you use can you pursue someone 
And then when that person is fearful and defends themselves, your violence, your fatal violence directed at them can be then construed as self-defense, which is what we have seen successfully deployed in the Trayvon Martin case. And what was the attempted uh, defense uh, or rationale, I should say, by given by the prosecutor in the Arbery case. And so it's, it's a principle that does not apply across racial lines. If an African-American pursued or stalked a white person um, with a firearm and said that they pursued this person just in case they were armed, and then a conflict ensued and the white person was shot fatally, and the black person attempted to say that this was self-defense, that would not fly anywhere <laughs> in this country. And can you provide the kind of historical context for that term you wrote, black panic defense? Yeah, so there was a, a point at which violence against gay people had been um, construed in such a way that an irrational attack uh, upon a gay person was seen as reasonable uh, because anyone would, in, in essence, defense attorneys and juries were uh, co-signing the idea that anyone could reasonably be afraid of a gay person. Uh, and so if you killed that person in uh, a fit of passion, it could be construed as self-defense. And so obviously you're not talking about the idea of what you have, what you're allowed to do to protect your own bodily integrity or to protect your own life. We're in the area of cultural prejudices and what you're allowed to do proactively. You know, what kind of violence are you able to issue and be the instigator of in the eyes of the, the general public? And in essence, the question is, what kind of violence do people in this category deserve to be submitted to? You also brought up a good point, and it's something I think you've talked about over the last five, six years, but you clearly articulated it in that latest piece where you wrote, there's more to be said about the burgeoning genre of videos capturing the deaths of black Americans and the complex combination of revulsion and compulsion that accompanies their viewing. They're the macabre documentary of current events, but the question remains about whether they do more to humanize or to objectify the unwilling figures at the center of their narratives. It's hard. And this gets into, I think, kind of broader ethical questions, you know, about media and you know, about race and, you know, the history of photography and so on. But when you see images you know, they're, they're kind of famous images of suffering that turn public sympathies in a particular direction. The image of the little girl who'd been napalmed in Vietnam, you know, is one. The image of the kind of shards or shreds of, of the World Trade Center after 9-11, you know, is another. But the interesting part of that is that in 9-11, we saw almost none of the bodies, you know, of which there were abundant images, uh, abundant, you know, opportunities. And so I think that very often, not always, but very often, societies are more comfortable depicting atrocities that have happened elsewhere. And even if it, 
it's in a way to elicit sympathy. But they're not as comfortable depicting atrocities that have happened to people who are thought of as members of their community. So when James Fry, uh, or Free, was, for instance, was uh, beheaded by ISIS uh, in 2014, you know, no media organization showed that. And that's partly because, you know, terrorism is, is intentionally trying to create spectacle. Like you want to deny them the thing they're seeking. But we still, you know, kind of bestow a kind of dignity on American victims. We don't, we have mass shootings here all the time. We almost never see the actual carnage that is a result of it. We don't see the actual emergency rooms uh, that are contained, kind of covered in blood splatter and so on. Like that is deemed uh, to be too far. But we have consistently seen these images of African-Americans dying. And I think that part of it is because we're thought to be outside the fold of American community in particular ways. But there's enough distance, enough mental and emotional and psychic distance to witness these images and not have that same reflex that says, you know, we shouldn't show this. Like, this is not something people should see. And on the other side of it, I think, just practically speaking, you know, before this abundance of images became available, Black people weren't believed <laughs> when we would talk about, look, this is a regular part of our lives. Like, we know people, we have relatives, we have classmates, you know, we have people who we grew up with who, who all have stories that somehow or another connect to this theme. And until everyone began carrying a video camera around in their pocket, it was impossible to actually get, or nearly impossible to actually get any kind of mainstream recognition of that fact, or even credence, you know, afforded to that argument. Do you think we're anywhere near a world where we don't need to put out those videos, where we can just say, yes, I believe you? No. It may well be that at this point we should no longer show those videos, but it won't be because we're at a point where people have the credibility to be believed outside of them. The cost of the emotional trauma might be too high to continually subject people to seeing these videos. And that might be a reason to not disseminate them as widely as they are. But you will still likely encounter the problem of people believing or not believing the victims or the families of the victims or the witnesses to these incidents are trying to say, or, or the narrative that they're trying to convey about what happened. You've been writing for years now about a particular subject, although you've also written about voter suppression and, and many other subjects for The New Yorker. Russia. Um, yeah, I've written about a bunch of things. Yeah, Plenty of things. So I don't want to pigeonhole you here, but you, you have spent and dedicated a lot of time into thinking about these interactions. And I wonder... I don't know, where you find the energy to keep going, the passion to keep writing. Um, I think that it's, it's, I think of it as an opportunity and a responsibility, you know, because for years I was critical <laughs> that these stories weren't being covered. 
and that they, the stories weren't being told in a way that I thought they should be told. And now I'm in a position to actually do justice as as well as I can to do justice to you know the lives of people that have been impacted by this issue. That doesn't mean it's easy. I really don't enjoy doing this writing, and you know I've talked with my editors about it sometimes. And actually, there are stories where I, that I haven't done. Sometimes there's been stories I've just been like, okay, I don't I don't want to touch that, and it'll be because you know I need a minute. I need to work on something else. But by and large, I think of it as a responsibility. How were the stories covered in the past? One was the extent to which they were covered. A lot of times stories were not, <laughs> you know, so there'd be, you know, moments of violence or not even necessarily just violence, other kinds of things that happen in the community. And there's a lack of media attention to it. In, you know, other instances, you would sometimes read stories and there'd be like even-handedness about things in which it really can't be even-handed. And there's another part of this, which is, and this is a problem with media in general, even outside of this one specific issue, an over-reliance and a willingness to grant credibility to the official narratives. And you know why that is. is Reporters often work under very difficult time constraints. Uh, They need to get information quickly. You can generally get a police report probably quicker than you can go round up people who were at the scene and, you know, talk to people who were there and find out background on things. And, you know, if you just are trying to file 1,100 words on a particular incident, you could get a public information officer and a police report and go from there. And that, I think, was one of the things that happened. And so... Now I look at things and go like, what would I want to have seen about this story if I weren't in this position? Mm. You know, journalistically, how do you see the pandemic affecting the day-to-day reporting that writers across this country have to do? So that's really interesting. And what it's done is, is make people rely on you know, other tools in ways that they hadn't before. And... Uh, you know, people have been pretty ingenious about it. The interview that you conduct, you know, the tracking the person down, the internet is a huge asset in that regard. You know, relying on your detective and deductive skills in ways that you might not if you were able to, you know, be out in the world and, and seeing things. And that goes for like even the you know, technical aspects of it, you know, figuring out how to conduct interviews and like the interviews and sound engineer them and all those all of those aspects of it and you know one of the things i think that's happening now is like uh there are best practices that news organizations are starting to put out and you know columbia journalism school where i work you know we put out a best practice guide for reporters uh as well so yeah people have been directly impacted obviously if you can't get on an airplane and go somewhere that's going to change the dynamic of you know lots of things about reporting and who you talk to you know, journalistically, I'm curious how you feel about this Twitter versus Donald Trump battle that's been ongoing for years, but seems to have reached a kind of tipping point this week. Where do you stand on that? The, the stance that Twitter has taken, I think, is eminently defensible uh, in terms of the free-flowing spread of misinformation 
on their network. Some of it coming from the top, you know, the American political system, you know, the White House, you know, in particular, the tweet about mail-in voting and, you know, labeling it and encouraging people to get the facts on it uh, is crucial because this could have serious consequences in November if people believe that the election is illegitimate. Uh, And so I thought that was important. At the same time, Twitter, not Twitter alone, but certainly Twitter, you don't exempt Twitter. These social media companies are largely responsible for it having gotten this bad in the first place. Even going all the way back to 2016, you know, when, you know, for instance, on Facebook, there were people trying to buy ads for the election and using Russian rubles as a currency. Well, Obviously, this tells you that a foreign interest is attempting to sway uh, the view of the American election. And a kind of reasonable ethical sense would say that you can't run that ad. Uh, If you're just looking to grab the money, then you do run that ad. And what we saw that is in many instances, they did. Uh, There are bots, there are trolls, troll farms. There's just tremendous amounts of misinformation you know, being spread across these networks. And it all, because it impacts their bottom line, they've tended to take a blind eye about responding to it. And so one of the other things about Twitter was like, you could reasonably ask why now? Uh, Because Donald Trump has violated their terms of service lots of times before. You know, what makes this different? And it's, it's certainly welcome, but it's a questionable kind of decision about, like, I would like to, to know what inspired this change all of a sudden. Do you appreciate the change, or, or do you just think it's too little too late? I mean, I think it's a step in the right direction, uh, but they're going to need to do a lot more than that if we want to not look at, uh, you know, digital voter suppression as being part of the landscape of the upcoming election. You know, because you mentioned Facebook and Zuckerberg has gone on the offensive here, saying, in general, I think a government choosing to censor a platform because they're worried about censorship doesn't exactly strike me as the right reflex here. I don't think that you build a company that gives people a voice like this if you didn't believe that individuals having a voice is a good thing. Well, so I think that, you know, like I'm frequently a commentator on MSNBC. Mm-hmm. MSNBC has decided that they don't, you know, or rather actually the, the cable networks, they could get away with it, but they've decided they don't want people to say the word motherfucker on the air. And, you know, if I would say that, there'd be a five second delay and they would beep that out. And so, <laughs> um, you know, these are privately held companies. And when we talk about, you know, censorship, we overlook the fact that the First Amendment is oriented toward the question of government censorship of people's views. But on on the one hand, we have uh, conservatives who, at least in theory, place a high premium on the value of private property. And on the other hand, we have them taking a strikingly I won't say hypocritical, but I'll say contrary position as it relates to, you know, what rules or guidelines Twitter chooses to enforce um, on their platform. And so, 
the other, the last thing I'll say about this is that, like, when Twitter was created, they touted their reluctance to censor, as they said in their minds, people's views. Um, they referred to themselves as the free speech wing of the free speech party. And, you know, what they found was, could have been fairly easily predicted, was that, you know, things fell along kind of the, the old traditional fault lines, that people of color were attacked, that racism surged, uh, misogyny, you know, became mainstream, you know, on these platforms, ethnic biases, religious biases, and, you know, the kind of antique grievances of American society, or, or you could say really like human societies, came to full flower. And, you know, that was, is what you would get. And, you know, you had a kind of untrammeled, unmediated network with, with no referees involved. Yeah, and Zuckerberg and other sort of mainstream media pundits always go back to this term, which is that social media companies and companies at large should not be moral arbiters. And I've always found that term to be really fascinating because I don't think anyone is asking the people who create these companies to be moral arbiters. I think, at least for me, I'm asking that they have a moral compass. They do not need to be an authority. If you create a social media company, chances are you're not an authority. <laughs> Part of this is it's almost actually wrong to specify social media companies because the ethic that they are operating on has been do whatever is necessary to maximize shareholder value. And I think that's become the reigning ethic in, you know, corporate, American corporate enterprises. Uh, and so if that is your only ethic, then it crowds out the room for these other kinds of ideas and these other principles as well. And so the, the tolerance of things that are clearly deleterious to society clearly have negative implications for democracy uh, that clearly can facilitate, you know, violence and victimization in the real world, in real life, IRL, you know. Um, you, you really can't, you really don't have space, you know, for an ethic that takes that into consideration if everything is about shareholder value. I know you're reluctant to make any kind of prognostication. But since we are here, where do you think we're headed in the next five to six months? So I don't know. I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think that in the broad scope, uh, I anticipate seeing a lot of, you know, recrimination and, uh, potentially even violence uh, around the American election coming up, you know, in November. I think that no matter what happens, Donald Trump will say that, uh, that the Democrats attempted to stuff the ballot box. It's infinitely more likely that he'll make that argument if he loses. And, you know, the consequences of that, unknowable. Uh, but if we look at um, the Michigan legislature, and people storming the legislature with weapons and 
the uh, displays of guns in Kentucky and uh, Richmond and the other, the, the general baseline level of violence that has attended Trumpism as a phenomenon, I don't think that we can rule out that something like that is in the car, could be in the cards as well. My last question for you before we go has less to do with Trump and politics and, and more to do with you as a person and as a father in this time. Where are you at day to day, Jelani? Um, you know, I have a thick skin. I think that one of the things that benefits me as a historian is that I try to look at things from the vantage point of the troubles that people in preceding generations have had to confront and surmount. And, you know, that always makes me feel like, oh, we can get by, we can get, we can handle this, you know, because the truly epic and dire crises and tragedies that confronted people who lived before we did, well, they, they have a humbling effect when you look at those things. And so I, I tend to just kind of, you know, wake up in the morning, try to put things in perspective and, you know, do what I have to do. Like anyone else, if, you know, anyone who is a parent, you are very much concerned about the quality of the world that your children are growing up in. And, you know, that's one of the other reasons why I do what I do, to try to make some small contribution toward things getting at least a millimeter better, <laughs> an inch, that would be good. Do you think you've succeeded? I hope so. Um, I'll, I'll leave that up to other people to evaluate. Jelani Cobb, thank you very, very much. Thank you. And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Jelani Cobb, You can read him over at The New Yorker. His latest piece, titled Minneapolis, the Coronavirus, and Trump's Failure to See a Crisis Coming, is now available on their website and will be in the June 8th issue of the magazine. To learn more about Jelani, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you're looking for more conversations with writers and activists, you can find those on our site, Wesley Morris, DeRay McKesson, Gloria Steinem, Morgan Parker, Jeremy O'Harris, Noam Chomsky, and more have all come on this podcast. This past Wednesday, we released a bonus episode with filmmakers Terrence Nance and Malik Vital. Last week, we sat with Brooke Gladstone. You can find all of those episodes and more on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you're looking to help this show out, the best thing you can do for us right now, in this moment, is to share it online with a friend, with your family. It really is the easiest way for new listeners to find our show. As always, our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. Our social media is by Kiran Aftab. Music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. 
Our editors are Andre Lynn, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. And the show is produced by Caroline Raybach. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next Sunday is Run the Jewels. And most importantly, rest in peace to all the men and women whose lives have been cut short. Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. There are many more names, and there really shouldn't be. May their legacies live on. Stay safe, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.